Welcome to Journey to Esquire, the podcast. I'm Jocelyn Hardrick, founder and president of Diversity Access Pipeline, Inc., the company behind this podcast and other great programs like Journey to Esquire Scholarship and Leadership Program, which provides $2,000 cash scholarships to third-year law students and internships to second-year law students, along with leadership training and mentors. And Journey to Esquire, the blog, which provides insightful articles to help navigate you through law school and beyond. Find out more on our website, www.journeytoesquire.com. Welcome to this episode of Journey to Esquire, the podcast. I'm Logan Jackson, a 2023 scholar of the program, and I'm here today with a very special guest, uh, Professor Scully, who is a professor of law at Stetson College of Law and one of my mentors. So I'm going to let Professor Scully talk a little bit about herself and introduce herself. Good morning. Uh, My name is Judith Scully, and I'm a professor at Stetson Law School. I also am the founder and one of the co-directors of the Social Justice Advocacy Concentration Program at Stetson. And I focus primarily on criminal law, criminal procedure, and all courses that um, touch on issues related to social justice. So half of the courses I've taken at Stetson, (laughs) literally. And it has been my pleasure. So thank you for joining us, Logan. Of course. So to jump into the conversation, first, I want to talk about why you decided to become a lawyer. So like a lot of my life, I'm not really sure that I made the decision. I think um, I had I was called to do this. Right. Why did I become a lawyer? I actually started out in the field of social work. I was in graduate school for social work. My Ambition was really to become a community organizer, to really be involved in grassroots organizing and to be really boots on the ground and, um, you know, touching people and helping them um, solve basic problems that were preventing the community from being uplifted. And I saw myself as an advocate for sure, but I did not think of myself at all as a lawyer. And in my first year of social work graduate school, Some of my professors and a couple of the deans of the social work school cornered me and um, suggested that perhaps it would be a better fit if I went to law school instead of continuing on in social work. And I think um, I had attracted a lot of attention of faculty and administrators because I was constantly arguing in class about the methodologies that we were using in community organizing. I didn't believe that people who were outside of the community could tell community members what to do or to understand their lifestyle unless they actually um, walked in their shoes for a moment. And I felt really strongly about that, that it was wrong for people to be looking down on other individuals, telling them what to do when they had never had that experience that community members had. And so I guess I had made um, a nuisance of myself in the classroom. And um, they came together and said to me, you know, you'd make a great lawyer. You should consider law school instead. And it was really them coming to me that planted the idea of law school. I had not thought about it at that point, um, didn't really have an understanding of what it meant to be a lawyer. And there was one um, Black professor in in particular. She was the only Black professor in the social work school at the time, Um, took some time to mentor me and to really get my mindset right. Because she said to me, the the reason you can't 
think about law school is because you haven't spent any time visualizing who you are and what you could be. And um, that conversation with her literally changed my trajectory in life. And I wound up applying to law school and getting in. So um, it chose me. I'm not really sure I chose to be a lawyer. It chose me. <laughs> well, did you enjoy law school? So honestly, I did not. Um, <laughs> I When I was in law school, and it is kind of funny because here I am a law professor at this point, right? But um, when I was in law school, I was really um, kind of disenchanted with the way in which um, the law school classroom was run. Uh, many of my professors were very staunch Socratic method individuals. They believed in teaching through humiliation. Um, I didn't understand that methodology at all. That's not how I learn. Intimidation doesn't work for me. In fact, if you try to intimidate me, um, what I do is shut down. I'm not interested in engaging with you on any level. Um, so it was very difficult, actually, for me to learn in that environment. And I wound up, um, in many ways, when I think about my legal education, I wound up teaching myself. Um, I did a lot of studying, for sure. But the classroom experience was, um, it wasn't something that I embraced. It was something that I um, really kept at an arm's distance. And I had to talk to myself about how to learn in an environment that really wasn't built for me. Right. That is just not the way in which I learn. Intimidation, humiliation, um, putting you on the spot was not the way for me to grow. Um, but I grew in spite of it. And I think it really helped me in many ways because I knew that when I am working with people or when I am helping people, that that's not the way that I want it to be. And so it really helped shape my perspective on um, how to teach and how to learn. So after you graduated from law school, I know you didn't immediately become a professor. We've talked about this. Correct. But what was your job search like after law school? Um, so I had the really great fortune of being connected to the National Conference of Black Lawyers while I was a law student. And the National Conference of Black Lawyers, NCBL as it's referred to, is a alternative bar organization that is comprised primarily of human rights, civil rights, and criminal defense lawyers who view themselves as the legal arm of the liberation struggle. So many of the senior attorneys in that organization were people who had represented Angela Davis, the Attica prisoners. Um, they served as legal counsel to many of the liberation organizations in Africa and other countries as well. And so I got connected to this huge human rights network as a student and continued on. I was also in law school during a time where apartheid was, apartheid in South Africa was still in full force and effect. And so the human rights aspect of racial oppression was omnipresent in my world. And um, those things really impacted um, how I viewed myself as a lawyer. And so when I was applying for jobs, I already knew I didn't want to do the law firm um, route. It was like, that's not for me. I'm not interested in commercial enterprise. I'm not interested in the capitalist experiment that we're involved in the United States. I really wanted to do human rights and civil rights type work. And so my job search really at that time was focused, I think, primarily on advocacy. You know, I was still very much 
um, in that social work grassroots organizing mentality. And um, at the time that I graduated, the first black mayor of the city of Chicago um, was running for office and he had just won. And I just decided that I wanted to work in that environment because he was very much a community organizer. He was able to build bridges between um, uh, communities that were very segregated in Chicago. And um, he took a human rights approach when he was talking about what needed to happen in Chicago. So I was very idealistic. And I said, I'm, I'm going to go work for the mayor of the city of Chicago. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I didn't apply for jobs. Actually, I just was like, I'm going to move to Chicago. I'm going to figure out how to get into this um, network of people who are doing this incredible work. And at that time, there were Black intellectuals who were flying in to Chicago from all over the country to work for this man. That was the kind of charisma and the kind of intellectual power that he had. And everyone kept saying to me, well, do you have a connect to anyone in the administration? And I didn't, I wasn't connected. I, you know, I'm first generation college educated, first generation law school um, graduate. So didn't really have that kind of network. And um I just through persistence figured it out. I didn't wind up working for the mayor immediately. I wound up working for a city councilman. And um, within a year, uh, a job became open in the mayor's administration and um, I applied and got it. Um, and it was kind of miraculous because the job that I applied for actually required seven years experience. And I was less than a year out and I applied anyway. Because I felt like if they gave me an interview, I could convince them that I could do this job and that I would do it really well and that I was the right person for the job. So it was a board of ethics position um, serving as legal counsel to the board of ethics, which was a brand new agency. And um, I was really excited about it. And I wound up getting the job, even though I didn't have right all of the so-called qualifications, quote unquote, um, that they were looking for. And um, it worked out great. It worked out great. And then from there, I would say, I don't want to say it was long leaps, but like, how did you end up becoming a pro professor and like everything coming full circle? And again, um, story of my life. Um, I didn't plan it. Um, it called me for the most part. But after um, getting this job with the mayor, unfortunately, he died in office unexpectedly within um, two years of being there. And I was caught off guard. I really didn't know what I was going to do because I was really interested, not so much in politics. That wasn't what attracted me there. It was that the human rights paradigm that he used to organize and his dedication to advocacy for individuals who were being treated inequitably. Um, and I knew that the next mayor was not going to, whoever it was, was not going to have that same sort of package as they came in the door. And I don't know if you know very much about Chicago, Chicago politics, but um, that's a, a rough road um, to be on. So I opted out of the governmental um, political options. And because of my position at the Board of Ethics, um, I had run into many individuals who um, were partners in law firms, right? Um, part of my job was to make sure that people filled out these ethics forms who had contracts with the city and many of them were illegally connected. And so I wound up working for a couple of law firms after that. 
um, doing a lot of civil rights work um, at, in one firm. And then I did some corporate work as well and hated it. And eventually wound up opening my own firm where I focused primarily on civil rights, human rights, and criminal defense work. And I was one of the only Black women in federal court in um, Illinois at that time in Chicago at the Seventh Circuit and um, the Northern District of Illinois. And I realized there weren't enough of us actually doing this kind of work. And there was this great need in the community um, for all kinds of civil rights work, any kind of uh, um, lawsuits involving discrimination. Um, what I was seeing was a lot of um, people outside of our community representing our community members. And I just wanted to help um, create an army of individuals who would um, serve in that capacity. I wanted to see more Black criminal defense lawyers. I wanted to see more Black civil rights lawyers. I wanted to see more Black human rights advocates. And so, um, you know, I did a lot of mentoring in uh, the earlier part of my career. I still do a lot of mentoring. But I think teaching called me because I realized I'd be in a classroom where I could impact a large number of people. And um, teaching also called me because I knew I could help recruit students and um, find the individuals that I thought were leaning in the direction of doing this type of work and help nurture them and put them on that pathway. So I came to teaching out of a desire to see us more represented in the areas of law that were meaningful to me. So how did you end up all the way from the north to the south? Yes. So I grew up in New York, wound up in Chicago, went to law school in D.C., went back to Chicago, um, and then eventually wound up teaching in the mountains of West Virginia. And um, one of the reasons I think that that happened is because I had a very active practice um, as a solo practitioner for the most part. I mean, I had some attorneys who would contract with me and work through my office, but um, it was pretty much a solo practice that I was engaged in for the most part. And I had um, adopted children at that point and I needed to be present um, at home more than I needed to be in the office. And so teaching really called to me because it would give me the opportunity to work um, in more concentrated ways, right? I knew, you know, if I taught Tuesday and Thursday, I'd have Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to maybe work from home or um, not be as caught up in the cases that I had had originally that really, I didn't feel like I ever stopped working when I was in private practice. I was always thinking about the next case or the next motion to file or the next argument to be made or how to help this person even after the case ended. And I needed to give that energy to my children. I needed a better balance. And um, teaching really helped me kind of create that balance. I had summers where I could be with my kids. I was home. By the time they got out of school, I was in the house. Um, so um, again, teaching called me just because of the circumstance that I was in. I'm a, I was a single mom my entire life. And so work-life balance was really important to me. And I realized I couldn't keep going at the pace that I was going um, with my law firm. It got to the point where I knew I either needed to bring on several other attorneys and build my firm, or I needed to do something else. And so I chose a different pathway. And so from going, like teaching, cause I know you taught 
was in Wisconsin, right? West Virginia. Yes. West Virginia, that W. So, <laughs> yes. And the reason I chose West Virginia really is because it was in the mountains. I'm originally, I'm a first generation American as well. I'm originally, um, my, my family is originally from Jamaica. Um, I love the mountains and, um, you know, that land really just called to me and the freedom that I experienced as a child being in Jamaica, um, I wanted to be able to um, give my my kids that opportunity to kind of run free and be in the mountains and go hiking and, you know, climb waterfalls and ride horses. And um, I know it's very odd coming from New York, originally Chicago, D.C., these big cities to wind up in the mountains of West Virginia. But um, it was a blessing for my kids really to grow up in that environment. And then when was it that you decided, okay, like now I'm going to go to Stetson and I'm going to take on this new opportunity? So I um, was hired at West Virginia University to be the director of their trial advocacy program or co-director of their trial advocacy program. And um, Stetson was on the map at that time as the number one um, trial advocacy school in the nation. And I personally felt like my program was just as good, if not better than most of them out there. And I wanted to come see like, what is Stetson doing that puts them on the map in this way? Like, why is this the number one school? So I came to visit for a year and um, took a look at what Stetson was doing. And I realized that we're number one because we are able to send our students to all types of different competitions, not just um, locally or nationally, but internationally as well. And West Virginia University was the only law school in the state of West Virginia. It's a state school and they just didn't have the funding to be able to compete at that level. Um, in any event, I came here, did my reconnaissance on what was happening here in trial advocacy and um, I was offered a permanent position. And I'm here and I'm thinking, well, you know, the beach, that's also very familiar to me coming from Jamaica. Um, I've done the mountains. Let's do the beach thing. Let's see what this is like. Let's see what um, sunshine does for all of us. And, um, you know, they made me an offer basically that I didn't want to walk away from. And so here I am 10, 15 years later. And speaking of 10, I know that this year is the 10th anniversary of our social justice advocacy program at Stetson that you birthed. So could you talk to us a little bit about, birth was kind of weird to say, but could no, you- No, it's birthing, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but literally yeah. you created and that that's the reason why I came to Stetson. Like- How beautiful. Not like, you know, I'm not from Florida. So when I was looking up law schools, I wanted to go to a law school that had a social justice concentration. Like that was the requirement. Like it had to be in the South. As much as Florida's the South, but it had to be in the South and it had to have a social justice um, advocacy concentration. So that's why I came to Setson. But could you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and, you know, the sure. basis for that? So I just want to comment, though, on your thing, your statement that it needed to be in the South, because I was feeling the same way that I wanted to move further South, that I felt that a lot of the issues that were plaguing the nation in terms of um, injustices um, were concentrated in the South and that um, Black people who were experiencing the worst um, impact of poverty and injustice 
um, were here in the South as well. And so Stetson was interesting to me, not just because of the beach, but because it was in the South as well. Mm -hmm. And so when I arrived here, um, again, with my trial advocacy hat on, and I'm looking at what we're doing here, um, which is really preparing students for the courtroom, which is an essential um, skill, right? You, I feel like litigation skills are transferable in everything you do, right? Whether you're in the courtroom or outside of the courtroom, knowing how to question people, knowing how to um, put together an opening statement and a closing argument are skills that you can use in every single arena, whether you're in legislative advocacy or community advocacy, um, our nonprofit agency, those skills are helpful. So I still have a deep respect for trial advocacy, but I felt that what was missing at Stetson was a voice for individuals who are underserved, right? So um, low-income people, middle-income people as well, um, a voice for people experiencing race discrimination and human rights um, violations wasn't really present on this campus in the way that I felt that it should be. And so I switched gears from trial advocacy to taking those trial advocacy skills and using them outside of the courtroom. And it really brought me full circle, right? Because I am a community organizer at heart. And so this gave me an opportunity to create a program where legal skills could be used on behalf of community advocacy. Um, and it helped me um, develop a platform really to reach out to community organizations and connect students with all sorts of community organizations where they could then begin to envision themselves as using their legal skills in a different way. And so I founded the social justice advocacy program here really as a um, survival mechanism for myself. I knew that I could not um, continue teaching unless I was developing that army that I talked about earlier. I wanted to create an army of civil rights, human rights, and criminal defense lawyers. And I now add to that reform prosecutors as well. Um, but I wanted to create an army of um, young lawyers who would be focused on the issues that I felt really needed the attention. Um, if we are gonna live in a democracy that actually values equality, we have to have strong advocates on the front line that are paying attention to these issues and founding the social justice advocacy program allowed me to do that. So in addition to your contributions to the SJA program, what are some of the other things that like you do in the community now to like maintain your um, passion for community advocacy? So a couple of years ago, I had the good fortune of connecting with the Community Foundation of Tampa Bay. And we created an organization called the Alliance for Advocacy and Philanthropy. And through this um, joint project, we have placed over 90 students with over 40 nonprofit organizations in the Tampa Bay area. So we are giving law students an opportunity to really understand how nonprofit organizations work, to help develop their mission, to help, um, to help them with grant writing as well. Um, and for our students to really understand, and I think and begin to adopt a more entrepreneurial approach to working in the nonprofit arena. And when I say entrepreneurial, what I mean is that many of the positions related to law and justice in nonprofit organizations um, have not yet been created, 
right? There is a lot of space for us to actually imagine a different world and contribute in ways that we have never done before. And although right now there's so much talk about how our democracy is in jeopardy, and it sounds like a abysmal place to be in many ways, it's also really a place that's laden with opportunity. We have an opportunity to really think about a different kind of world, a different way of being, a different way of serving. And young lawyers have these incredible skills that can be helpful to moving the mission of nonprofit organizations forward. And so uh, this alliance that I have helped create around advocacy and philanthropy is an opportunity for all of us to begin to think in much bigger ways about how we fill the justice gap and how we help to organize um, our communities in order to demand equal justice on a wide variety of fields. And I know that I had the opportunity of being a member of the Community Foundation Tampa Bay in that program. And I also had, which was a wonderful opportunity. Um, yes, you were one of our fellows, which is a whole different program, right? We have two different programs, the Community Fellowship, and then we have the Community Associates Program, which is the one that I was talking about. But our Community Fellows Program, um, we were really blessed to have you with us. Yes. <laughs> and we also have uh, the Florida Law School's Consortium on Racial Justice, which I was a part of as well. Yes, that is true. So we are part, Stetson is part of a... 12 um, law school consortium. Um, all 12 law schools in the state of Florida belong to the uh, Florida Law School Consortium for Racial Justice, which was formed in 2020, um, shortly after all of the um, uh, all of the nation as well as the the globe was made aware of the George Floyd case and the injustices that take place in terms of how policing is racialized and how so many unarmed black men and women um, were being killed um, with, you know, within full view of other individuals, right? It's these video tapes of what has happened that has made this issue such a front and center issue. Because even when I first started practicing law, policing was always racialized. Policing was always violent. But what brought this to the forefront from a global and human rights perspective is really the fact that it became accessible through the Internet. Right. And so during that time period, the Florida Law School Consortium on Racial Justice was formed as a response to us recognizing that as legal educators, um, we have a responsibility to make sure that our students understand um, the inequities that exist in our society, and also that they understand their responsibility um, to help contribute to um, making this, the scales of justice more balanced, particularly as it pertains to race. And so we are, I guess, three years in existence right now. For the first two years, I served as the co-chair of that consortium. Um, we are still members of the organization, and we are still pushing forward um, and making sure that we bring students in. Our focus is really on making sure that students are educated about um, issues related to racial justice. So I suppose now coming full circle once more, what advice would you offer to a future law student that perhaps is feeling as if, you know, 
not that they're not interested in going to law school, but that they have more of a focus on working in the community and feel like they may not have a place in the law? So, um, you know, I don't remember who it is. He said, um, sometimes when you arrive at the table, there's no seat for you. You need to bring your own. Um, I think that's the approach that you have to take. If you have a passion um, or a light for doing certain type of work, um, that's not a coincidence, right? If you're being called to do something, then it is your job to follow that calling, um, regardless of what everyone else is doing around you, right? Um, you receive that call because it's a call for you, not for everybody else. And you have to get comfortable with that. So my advice is that if you are, um, leaning towards civil rights, human rights um, are really just balancing the scales of justice, that you answer that call and that you be persistent about it. There are many of us in the legal academy who are focused on those issues at well, as well, who can help mentor you and help connect you to all different types of um, avenues that will help build your career um, many of us entered into the academy in order to do just that, right? I'm not unique in terms of the story that I'm telling. There are many of us in um, law school administrations and on law school faculties who are looking for students like this. And so my advice is to be courageous, um, to walk against the flow and follow the calling that you have. Um, and as I said, be as persistent as you possibly can in pursuing your goals, because there are other people who need you, right? Um, and I know that for students who choose this alternative track of lawyering, that it's often very difficult um, because your classmates are asking you questions like, you know, um, don't you want to make money? <laughs> don't you want to actually do something that's more lucrative? and um, planting these seeds of doubt in your head. And I think that you um, really just need to ignore that noise that's around you and focus on what you know is right for you that will help you grow. And um, stop listening to those voices that say that it's impossible, right? Um, I think it's James Baldwin who said, those who say it can't be done are usually interrupted by those who are doing it. And so, um, my advice is do what you were called to do, right? There is a reason that you're receiving those kinds of messages and that type of energy. And we need you in the world. So continue on. Thank you. And thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great talking with you. <laughs> Thanks, Logan. Um, take care. You too. Thanks for tuning in to another great episode of Journey to Esquire, the podcast. Support, share, subscribe. And for more, visit www.journeytoesquire.com.